So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament, to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one to use in one of the chair racks down around you. Luke chapter 5. If you're a guest this morning, uh, I'm glad you're here. Let me just explain what we're doing. Uh, we are in, a, in the midst of a series, and really it's more than a series. It's uh, an overall arching church initiative uh, called All In, in which we're exploring the idea of responding individually and corporately to all that God has done for us. Because as we've been saying the last few weeks, God has gone all in for us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in, loving, uh, giving, sacrificing, rescuing, indwelling, empowering us uh, for life, calling us to mission. And so with that in mind, I want to take a look at at an event that's recorded in the New Testament in three out of the four uh, gospel narratives Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. We're going to take a look at Luke's report on that, uh, chapter 5. But apparently, as Jesus was traveling around the region of Galilee, teaching uh, and speaking with people and ministering to people, news of him, not just teaching, but healing people, began to spread. And so one day, people from all over the region, including some of the religious experts, converge on a house in which Jesus was teaching. And according to Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke specifically, this is what happened. Chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Uh, When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things uh, today. Now, why uh, do I want us to consider this story this morning? Well, very simply, it's because for me, it represents a picture of the contemporary Christian church, specifically the groups of people who make up the church. I mean, think about who Luke says Uh, was there that day with Jesus. There were the comfortable religious guys who, according to Mark, uh, had seats in the house and were pretty indifferent about those who didn't, those who had to stand in and around the house. Among that religious group uh, were critics who would challenge Jesus uh, at every turn. There were curious onlookers who had heard about Jesus and wanted to see him. Uh, There were some who were legitimately concerned about others and felt they, they needed to experience God's grace. So So you had um, comfortable, critical, uh, curious, and concerned individuals. But those who made this event at least so fascinating to me uh, is the small group of committed people who showed up on the scene. We're not told how many there were. We know that at least four guys came carrying a sick, paralyzed man uh, to the house. We don't know their names. We don't know uh, their ages, their professions. We don't really know much about them at all, except that when they arrive, they see this mob of people And they realize there's no way uh, they're going to get this crippled man through the door of that house, let alone through the crowd inside. Uh, I mean, there was no outside sound system where they could hear Jesus. There was no streaming video they could see him. There was no texting. There was no tweeting. You know, none of those things. So there was just seemingly no way to get to Jesus. But these guys were not, um, 
they were not about to get discouraged. Uh, they were not about to give up or just sit around complaining. Instead, they were going to do whatever it took to get this man um, who couldn't help himself. They were going to help this man who couldn't help himself, whatever it took. And they knew that otherwise he was going to die. And so they believed that if they could somehow, if they could somehow just get him to Jesus, that Jesus had the power to help him, had the power to heal him. The question was, what were they willing to do? You know, and how far were they willing to go to do it? How committed were they? Apparently, they were all in because they, they do some things that were quite unconventional, really. Uh, some things that I think we can learn from. For one, they loved more than most thought realistic. Now, it is possible that this paralyzed man was a friend or family member of those who carried him. That's possible. But the texts uh, don't indicate that. Luke, Mark, Matthew, no one reports that these, these men were hauling someone's father, uh, son, brother, or best friend. And so it's most likely that this crippled man was, he was a poor social outcast who had no one, who had nothing, and who spent his days begging in the streets for help. And these men, they see his desperation, they have compassion for him, and they decide to pick him up and carry him to Jesus. And this is where we, we sort of balk at the story and we think there's no way. There's no way that's true. This guy must have... He must have been related or at least friends with somebody in the group. Why do we assume that? Maybe it's because the idea of loving and caring that much for somebody outside the family or outside our circle of friends or our social strata or our church community just doesn't seem realistic. We might be willing to carry a brother or a buddy or a cousin, possibly even our next door neighbor, but a, a, a beggar, an under-resourced person, some marginalized street paralytic, a complete stranger. But see, that's what made these, these guys so unusual. They, they actually cared more about this poor person than others thought made sense. And they realized that this man not only had a physical material need, but he had a spiritual need, and they were willing to carry him to the only one who could help him, and that was Jesus. They went all in to make that a reality. How much love and compassion... Does the Christian church today in America show to people around us who, who are hurting, who have physical, material, spiritual needs, do we as Christians care enough to actually do something significant for them, something spiritually significant? The sad reality is that too many churches around our nation are filled with people who have a hard time carrying themselves to God, let alone carrying broken and hurting friends, not to mention strangers. Many of our congregations are are filled with the religiously comfortable, with critics, uh, curious onlookers, even those who are somewhat concerned. But how many churches are made up of those who will go out, out of their way to make a difference, a real difference, even if it's in the life of one person? Because God, you know what? God is looking for those kind of people. People who are a little crazy, you know, a little unconventional, a church whose heart breaks for the forgotten, for the marginalized, for the lost who know nothing of the grace of God. God's looking for a church filled with men and women who think beyond themselves and whose lives are characterized by radical acts of love and generosity and sacrifice. People who willingly go all in for the sake of others. Which, you know, as it did with these men in the story, it requires committing more than others think necessary. Now, I'm sure most of you realize that love, you know, love is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling we get about someone. Love is commitment uh, expressed through self-sacrifice. 
It's taking action for the benefit of another, of another person. Uh, the, the, um, the Apostle John said, you know, for God so loved the world that he what? Felt warm and fuzzy about me and you and about all the other broken, sinful people on the globe? No. John says, for God so loved the world, he committed to do something. He gave. His love was demonstrated, demonstrated by the act of sending his son as a sacrifice for sin so that anyone who believes, anyone, will have eternal life. In other words, God models for us what true love means, what true love looks like. It's important, important for us as Christians today to understand that our culture, our culture has become increasingly skeptical of what the Christian church has to say because it doesn't always match what it does. What good does it do for us to walk out on the streets of our culture and proclaim, hey, we're Christians, we're Jesus followers, we're compassionate, we're caring, God loves you and so do we. What good does that do? No good. Because love isn't measured by the words we say. It's measured by the actions we take. And if we want people to believe that they matter to God and they matter to us, we need to love them by doing something for them. One of the hot topics right now being discussed in Christian circles is how millennials, you know, people in their mid to late 20s, uh, have left the church. And there are, there's a lot of finger pointing going on. I talked to a, a journalist, a Christian journalist recently, who told me that they thought the problem was style. I read an article recently by another person who said the problem is, is our youth programming. There's a problem with our youth programming. And so there's a lot of finger pointing and blame going on. But here's my opinion. The primary cause of disillusionment and departure from the church is the superficial, disingenuous faith of Christians in it. And I'm not just saying that off the cuff. There's, there's documented uh, evidence for this. Uh, Larry Taunton is an author, he's a c cultural communicator, he's an executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, it's a nonprofit organization dedicated to the defense of the Christian faith. And uh, this past June, um, he wrote an article in the Atlantic Magazine entitled, Listening to Young Atheists, Lessons for a Stronger Christianity. And uh, what happened was Taunton and his organization, they, they went around the nation and they, they surveyed and they interviewed young college atheists, at least students who claim to be atheists. I'm not convinced most people who say they're atheists really are. I don't think they really thought through it. But these students claim to be atheists and they left the church. What they found in the interviewing process was that most of these students had attended church, but they left. And so they asked them why. And they gave a number of reasons, uh, like, you know, that the church offered superficial answers to life's complicated problems. Or they said it's because Christians won't engage in conversation with those who think differently without being judgmental and, and harsh and mean. Uh, another reason was um, they said um, Christians just can't seem to get along with each other. Uh, but the top two reasons that were given were these. They said that the mission and the message of the church was vague, and that Christians didn't really live what they say they believed. And so Taunton wrote this in his article. He says, you know, Christianity, when taken seriously, compels its adherents to engage the world, not retreat from it. There are a multitude of reasons for this mandate, ranging from care for the poor, orphaned, and widowed to offering hope to the hopeless. These students were, above all else, idealists who longed for authenticity, and having failed to find it in their churches, settled for a non-belief that while less grand in its promises, felt more genuine and attainable. 
He goes on, he says, that anyone would find atheism more authentic than Christianity reveals the failure of many American churches to accurately reveal Jesus. But it also indicts us as individuals. Haven't many of us communicated our preference for a Savior who demands little of us, even as we contentedly wash down our cracker crumbs with diluted blood? Stephanie, a student at Northwestern University, said, the connection between Jesus and a person's life just was not clear to me. Michael from Dartmouth College says, Christianity is something that if you really believed it would change your life and you'd want to change the life of others. I haven't seen too much of that. Listen, here's what, <clears throat> here's what Taunton's research tells me. It tells me that our world, our culture, our young people don't necessarily need a new definition of Christianity. They need a radical demonstration of it. Think about the guys in our story. They saw this poor sick man, they recognized his need, and they, they did something. And in the same way, as Christians, we can't just talk about loving those in our local community, in our region, in our world. We have to commit to actually doing it. And the issue isn't just about who to love, but how to love. And again, for the guys in the story, loving, for them, loving meant they had to dream bigger than others thought practical. And they came up with this crazy idea of how to love this guy, and it was, it was a pretty big deal considering the fact they had, they had obstacles to overcome, one of which was carrying someone who, who couldn't walk. And, you know, we don't know, we don't know how far they had to carry him. Maybe it was a few blocks, maybe it was a few miles, but I don't think that mattered to them. What mattered was their dream of helping this guy. But there were other op- obstacles. I mean, the crowd, for example, Mark says in his gospel that the place where Jesus was teaching was so crowded, so packed, people were pouring out of the doors, and so when these, these men arrive on the scene, they couldn't see Jesus, they couldn't hear him, and most people would have been all bummed out, you know, and just kind of given up, moped, moped around. But again, these guys were different. They were all in. Their dream was too big to let go of. And they weren't going to allow anything to keep them from doing what they were compelled to do. And so they were willing to get a little crazy and take, you know, take risks, to risk more actually than others thought safe. And they climbed up on the roof carrying this guy in a mat. That was no easy deal. I mean, uh, one or two of them couldn't have done it. It required a team effort, 100% participation. Now, how do you think the people on the ground reacted to what they were doing? My guess is that some people yelled at them and said, hey, crazy lunatics, get off the roof. What are you doing? The religious folks were probably saying, this isn't part of the liturgy. You know, uh, the safety conscious were saying, they were afraid the crippled man was going to slip off the mat and fall. The fiscally conservative were wondering, how much did that mat cost anyway? The politically minded imagined, what legislation can we pass to keep this from ever happening again? And I wonder if someone actually tried to keep them from climbing, because was it safe? No, it wasn't. Was it risky? Absolutely risky. But these guys weren't willing to take these guys were willing to take a chance because, you know, they understood that this man's need to get to, G- to get to Jesus was greater than their need to be safe and conventional. Now, I can't help but, but think that sometimes many in the church today are more like the folks on the ground than the guys on the roof. Now, a lot of Christians observe and acknowledge every single day the physical, material, and spiritual needs of, of people around them, but often settle for the religious status quo rather than take risks to actually help and make a spiritual difference. 
And I hate, you know, I hate to say it, but the Christian church is overflowing in America with people who eagerly sing about loving others. And we have PhDs who lecture on it. We have students who study it. We have authors who write on it. We have pastors who preach about it. We have experts who research it. We have Christian leaders and parachurch organizations travel around the world to discuss loving others in Jesus' name. But the question is, will any of us, will any of us risk walking across the street to do it? That's the question. I mentioned this last week, Christian author, pastor, theologian John Piper just came out with his book recently entitled Risk is Right, in which he argues that as Christians, we should be absolutely tenacious in pursuing our mission in the world, the mission that God has given us, and we should move forward with God-sized vision, and we should be fearless, and we should be sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom and its expansion, and he stresses how as God's people, we're called to live by faith, and faith requires risk, and he defines risk this way. He says, it's an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. Risk is possible because we don't know how things will turn out. He says, there is sometimes a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of risk-taking, There's a hypocrisy that lets us take risks every day for ourselves, but paralyzes us from taking risks for others. It's right to risk for the cause of Christ. Genuine faith frees us to risk for the cause of God. It's not heroism or lust for adventure or courageous self-reliance or efforts to earn God's favor. It is childlike faith in the triumph of God's love that on the other side of all of our risks for the sake of righteousness, God will be holding us. The men in the story believe that, that God would hold them. And so they didn't stand around just talking about loving and helping and giving and serving and getting this guy to Jesus. They climbed the roof. They took the risk because they were all in. And they expected more than others thought reasonable. So they climbed up there and they tore through the ceiling and they lowered the paralyzed, paralyzed man right down in front of Jesus. You could just see dirt and sticks and you know, dust is falling all over the place. And it, it's pretty cool because Jesus doesn't condemn them for that. He doesn't condemn them for taking the risk. He doesn't rebuke them for their unusual messy methods. But instead, the text says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven. And he heals the man first spiritually and then physically. And it's real easy to miss A key point here that Jesus, the text says, Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the committed non-traditional guys. They weren't well-groomed religious experts. They didn't stop to think, you know, whether or not digging a hole in a roof during a service was okay. They simply knew that if they loved this guy and they could get him to Jesus, somehow great things were going to happen for him. And so everything they did, Loving, dreaming, giving, caring, risking, digging, lowering the mat, all of it was because they expected the Son of God to do something big. Their faith in God's power set them apart from the group who was seated comfortably below in the house. Too many congregations around America consists, consist of well-groomed, comfortable churchgoers, along with critics and the curious and the concerned, many of whom can talk really good theology. But until Christians actually believe what we're saying, 
that God is loving and merciful and gracious and powerful until we believe Jesus is able to have an eternal impact on someone's life. We're going to stay on the ground, man. We're going we're to be huddled in the house. We're going to be stuck in the seats. We're going to be comfortable. We're going to be critical, maybe even a little concerned about things, but we're going to be just part of the safe crowd. Is that what we want to do? Is that what you want to do? Is that who we want to be as a church? It's not who I want to be. It's not what I want to be. I would, rather, I would rather be different. I would rather dream big, man. Take some risks. Try some new things. Get a little mess, messy. Get a little crazy even for the sake of people who need to know and experience the love and grace of God. And I am convinced that's, that's what God wants us to do. It's who he wants us to be. And if we are, then like the guys in the story, we get to celebrate more than others think possible. Jesus said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. I mean, he healed the guy right there in front of everybody and amazed the whole crowd. And they start praising God, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Do you think most of the people on the ground and in the house came with any idea that that was going to happen? No, man, no way. To their own admission, they were, they were amazed. They'd never seen anything like it, never expected anything like it. But when the power of God was revealed and that paralyzed man got up and walked, man, I guarantee their expectations changed. That subdued congregation exploded with excitement. Things got loud. People got inspired and began to genuinely celebrate and praise God. I mean, can you imagine what it was like in the house afterward? Can you imagine what it was like? Forget the house. What was it like on the roof? The digging had stopped and the dancing had started. Because Jesus did what a few committed people believed, really believed he could do. Graciously give new life to a poor, sick, marginalized, dying person. You know, there's a lot I think we can learn from this event. For me, uh, you know, it tells me that as Christ followers living in the midst of a spiritually crippled, secular, and dying culture, you know, doing nothing is wrong. And playing it safe doesn't seem right. People need to know and experience the love and grace of God. It's what they're longing for as human beings. It's what's missing to their existence. And for that to happen, for them to understand that, to learn that, to know that, to embrace that, for that to happen, we as the church can't always be completely practical or or rational or traditional or conservatively conventional or safe. But God never asks us to be. He calls each and every one of us to be men and women of faith. And you know what? Faith motivates radical behavior. It does. No way around it. In short, God wants us to be like the guys in this story who for the sake of the sick, the lost, they're fully committed. They're all in together. Together. I want you to know that I believe Parkview is on the verge of becoming an all-in kind of people. Roof climbers, if you will. You know, what we've experienced uh, and seen here in the last three years alone is, is humbling, and it inspires me to keep pushing forward as we enjoy God's favor. You know, what does that mean, pushing forward? It means having faith, man. It means, it means risking to expand our influence globally. 
We've been talking about this, supporting the work of International Justice Mission, continuing to, we support them already, but continuing to support the work of International Justice Mission and helping specifically to establish Mahima House 2, which is an aftercare facility for underage girls who, are, who, were, uh, who were stolen from their fami- families and held captive and sexually exploited and are still being, being held and, and the same things happen in Kolkata, India right now. We want to be part of, of the rescue of those girls and, 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 and to help them recover and to find God. It means expanding our influence regionally. With poverty on the increase in the suburbs of Chicago, we'd like to establish a community center to our east along North Avenue where under-resourced families and, and students and children can find things like, like language classes or tutoring, um, career counseling, free health screenings, computer training, free legal advice, parenting classes, music, art classes. You know, this, this, we're thinking about a place where many of you can apply your passions, your abilities, your, um, your expertise. You know, you can volunteer and be directly involved in making a difference. We envision establishing a second campus somewhere between here and Elmhurst. When God opens the opportunity to do that, we want to move. Uh, we also uh, see the need to renovate our current uh, uh, constantly used and ever-aging facility. And here's the thing. Yes, that's expensive to do because we're located in Glen Ellen and DuPage County, not Kolkata, India. But it's important for you to understand the long vision here, the long-term vision. We're talking about two-year commitment. Understand, over the long term, our work with International Justice Mission, our work with Mahima II, a community center, a second campus, will be a far more expensive investment because those are ongoing ministry commitments. And then locally, we, we need to continue funding what we're doing right now, right here, from ministry to our children, to our students, our adult classes, our recovery programs, man of ministry, a ministry to our homeless friends, from staffing to snow removal, all of our everyday operating expenses, we need to handle those and deal with those. And all those things need to continue. What's it going to take for all that to happen? It's going to take an all-in commitment like what's demonstrated in this Luke 5 account. It requires a team effort. Alone, we can't do it. On our own, we can't do it. But together, together with each of us making a, a sacrificial contribution, we can accomplish an awful lot. And I can't emphasize this enough. All in, this all in thing, is not about what Parkview wants from you. It's about what God wants for you as his people, to be part of something spiritually significant in this world, to be part of a cause that is greater than than yourself. God wants for you and he wants for me, he wants for all of us to grow in faith and generosity and impact on our world, spiritual impact on our world. Way too many Christians are settling for a faith that revolves around catering to themselves when the call of Jesus is to actually abandon ourselves for the sake of others, to sacrifice. There are 4.5 billion people in our world today who have yet to experience the love and grace of God found in Jesus. One billion of them haven't even heard of Jesus. What happens to them when they die? That's one of the most important questions for Christianity in America. Because if all people go to heaven, or if they, they get there by trying to be good and religious, 
then there's no urgency to reach them. There's no, there's no need to take risks. But if people are facing an eternity without God, then we have no time to waste our energy and our gifts or our financial resources. The chance for us to go all in for God and all out for the world is right now. Together, this is our moment. This is our, this is our moment in history to make a spiritual difference in the lives of men, women, students, children, locally, regionally, and globally. And make no mistake about it, all that you have, God has graciously given to you for a purpose. And as his people, his chosen people, the church, God calls you, he calls me, he calls every single one of us to faith, to risk, to sacrifice, to commit, and help rescue those in need of Jesus. There are no second chances. This is our moment. This is your God-given life and opportunity to do that, to make a difference. It's my opportunity. Our lives are right now. I hope you'll join me in making a difference. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we recognize the brokenness of our world, the needs of people around us, material, physical, spiritual needs. We see it every day. We see a world that is, that is searching, people that are searching for meaning, for purpose, who are looking to experience unconditional love that has no source in this world apart from you. And you have called us as your people. You have chosen us at this time in this place, at this moment, to make a difference. Um, to love in a way that makes sense to people, not just to talk about it, but to actually do something, to commit ourselves, to make a sacrifice for, for someone else. I pray that we would, we would be the kind of people who, be, who are willing to climb up on the roof, to be unconventional, to take some risks, even if it's for one child one um, underage girl caught in sexual exploitation, one man or woman in search of, of assistance, one person looking for truth, for people looking for you, their God. This is our moment. This is our time. May we have the courage to move forward in Jesus' name. Amen. I want, to, uh, I want to thank you for being here. And maybe, you know, maybe there's some things going on in your life you're struggling with today or maybe just the question of how you can be part of All In. Following the service, some of our prayer team will be down in the front. They'll be glad to talk with you and pray with you. So uh, you just can come down when we're done and they'll be happy to be with you. Um, hey, listen, I, you know, look, you, you guys know me. I, I've been around a long time here. And um, all I've told you this before and it's really true. All I've ever wanted to do is just tell people about Jesus. That's it. And teach the scriptures. Everything else is sort of this necessary thing that, to help make that happen, to help make that a reality. And I can't do it by myself. You know, and just a few of us can't do it. We need an all-in team effort to make these things a reality. Our world needs to hear about the God who loves them, about the Savior who died for them, and the people of God need to show them what that means and what that looks like. And that's what we're called to do. So, you know, um, the day I stopped teaching about Jesus... The day that I stop challenging you as a church is the day you tell me hit the road. Okay? We have that agreement? Is that good? Because then I'm just accepting the status quo and God doesn't call us to do that.
So I hope you'll join me in making a difference, making a commitment, making a financial you know, contribution. And, and I'm telling you, I think we're going we're gonna to see God do amazing things. Next week, we're going to ask you to make that commitment. And uh, I hope you'll come back and be with us as we do it. In the meantime, this week, pray, listen. Next week, we're going to do, okay? Let me pray for you. Our Father, we recognize this morning our world needs you. They need to know about you. They need to understand what your love is like. They need to understand experientially what your grace looks like and feels like and means. And you have called the church to be Jesus to our world. And uh, I pray that we, at least as a church, would commit ourselves to doing that. Not only talking about Jesus and teaching about him, but living in a way that, that um, demonstrates him. Into, in our community, locally, regionally, globally. And that requires a commitment. It requires all of us. It means a team effort. May we all join together and make that a reality. And now may your hand of grace and peace and courage uh, rest upon your people as we go our own way this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>